0: All right. So today I'm here with Assistant Professor Daniel Larimore of CU Boulder's um, Department of Computer Science and the BioFrontiers Institute. Daniel, how are you doing today?
1: I'm hanging in there. How about yourself?
0: Doing all right. So you're working as part of the COVID-19 Mobility Data Network, which uses Facebook data to help track and understand the spread of COVID-19. So how does this system work? How does this project work?
1: Sure. Um, the COVID-19 Mobility Data Network is basically a group of infectious disease epidemiologists and mathematical modelers um, who have been given access to what's called a Facebook Geo Insights portal through something called Facebook Data for Good. And the gist of it is that during times of disaster, what Facebook will do is give access to anonymized and aggregated data on things like population density and cell phone coverage to emergency responders. Um, So if you imagine a tsunami or an earthquake where that kind of information could really help people respond to uh, that current disaster, uh, that's exactly what the the platform was set up for. But now in the time of of COVID-19, what they're hoping to do is allow Facebook data to better help local departments of public health understand uh, the importation risk of people moving around As well as um, whether or not people are starting to get tired let's say of of sheltering in place and are starting to um, to really uh, start mixing a lot more so the facebook uh, data for good just lets us see at a very coarse grain and we're talking about you know 0.6 by 0.6 kilometer grid scale um, how people are moving and what the the population density of facebook users happens to be
0: so you can kind of visualize the movement of people um throughout areas
1: yeah Let me give you a a concrete example, because I think that helps. Um, One of the things that we've been wondering is, um, what is the concentration of these essential businesses in a particular area? Um, And how much are people still going to work in spite of uh, the current crisis? So one way that we can do that is look at the number of people who are in a city, let's say Boulder, um, during the day, Monday through Friday, and then compare that to how things look on the weekend. And when we see a fluctuation of the weekday average versus the weekend average, we know that this is not a place where everything is totally quiet during the day. People are still moving around. People are still showing up to work or or leaving for work in the morning. Um, And that means that there's a higher rate of mixing in in spite of social distancing. If you look at other communities that are mostly, let's say, suburban, you won't see that same kind of fluctuation. So that kind of information lets people understand where – the mixing is, is taking place and, and where social distancing efforts um, are, are working or, or not working because of the essential businesses. Right. Um,
0: now, where did the idea to track the virus using this data come from? I understand that this is working in part with Facebook and the Harvard School of Public Health.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, some of the researchers involved in this project, uh, Caroline Bucky from Harvard Public Health, um, Vaj Balsari from Harvard Med, and uh, Andrew Schroeder from something called directrelease.org, uh, have a long history of, of trying to use human mobility data to understand the spread of disease. So Caroline's early work was looking at how people moving around in Kenya um, could tell us a little bit more about how malaria parasites are also moving around in Kenya. You know, these parasites don't live outside a human or a mosquito, and the mosquitoes don't move very far during their lifetime. So, any kind of large scale mixing of parasite genomes and parasite infections across a large population comes from people moving around. And so using cell phone data um, as an approximate way to look at human mobility, um, Caroline was able to to put together these kind of models that help us understand where the infections coming from and where are they going to. So that kind of platform has been established for years now. We're just trying to apply it to the current pandemic to try and help, in particular at a local level. All right, so this is uh, similar to some models that have been used
0: before for other diseases. That's right. Uh, um, are there any other diseases that this has been used for? I believe there was a mention of it being used for diseases like Ebola as well.
1: Yeah, human mobility was was uh, uh, crucial in, in understanding the importation or exportation risks around Ebola, um, whether or not it was going to stay where it was or, or if it was going to spread uh, globally. It's also been really useful in understanding uh, the spread of dengue virus, uh, which is another one of these diseases that's spread by a mosquito um, who comes into contact with a human and then transmits it that way. So when the humans move around, they bring the infection with them and then infect the local mosquitoes who then spread on to, to others nearby. All
0: right. um, with this model specifically, were there any challenges you faced when creating or working with the model? Um, are there any kind of uh challenges you face um, going through this data?
1: It's a really good question. Actually, the the challenges that we're facing now are challenges that are there for a really important reason, which is privacy. So the challenges that we have are that Facebook won't ever give us access to anything close to raw mobility data. So we don't ever get to see individuals moving around. The closest that we're going to get are these large kind of Google Maps squares that show us how hundreds or thousands of people have moved around together. So we can't track any individuals. Um, And it also means that, that we don't get to see paths. So what I mean by that is that if somebody went from, let's say, Broomfield into Denver and then Denver into Boulder, we might see that there was movement between Denver and Boulder and Broomfield and Denver, but we would never be able to connect that to one long path if that makes sense. we'd see kind of the independent movement, but we wouldn't see it all joined together. So Facebook has these protections in place so that um, we don't de-anonymize people and and spy into people's private lives, but we only get this kind of 10,000-foot view of the data. Um, So that's kind of the biggest challenge, is is trying to work with data in a way that still respects people's privacy, even in this time of crisis, when I think uh, people's inclinations might be to, to strip away those important privacy protections.
0: And um, now you say that the uh, data is anonymous and aggregated, but are there any other ethical considerations you're taking into account when you're looking at this data?
1: That's a good question. Um, it's nice that Facebook has put in these kind of guardrails that they won't even show us any information at all on tiles when um, doing so would reveal too much information. Um The other thing that we're doing, though, is that we're trying to work exclusively with local departments of public health. Um, Both government, Facebook, and I think citizens should be concerned about the possibility of just plugging the data pipes from Facebook directly into government. And I don't think that that's a a direction that that we as a state or county or or country really want to go. So the reason that people like me are involved is that we are the mediators here. Facebook is giving us data. We're processing it and then sending these situation report updates to local departments of public health um, and trying to get them that information. But we're not giving them direct data access um, because that's, that's not something that anybody really wants. Um, we're also trying to avoid um, very large-scale uh, uh, collaborations here where, you know, um, larger scales of government would be, Getting access to very fine grained data. We're trying to make this uh, something that's impactful on a local level um, to avoid some of those uh, stickier ethical considerations.
0: What's the experience been like working with these local governments, um, kind of assisting with them with this data? Um, What kind of changes have you seen in the way that they're um, handling the crisis? How has the data helped? Um, Just kind of what's that been like?
1: The first thing that I want to say is that these crisis responders and emergency response teams across the counties in Colorado are um, doing heroic work. They're doing it oftentimes still trying to work from home, uh, oftentimes with small children at home, and they're doing it uh, 24-7 these days. Um, and it's just worth pointing out that, that they are completely overloaded and working the best they can to, um, to really get a good situational awareness right now So I think a lot of the focus um, so far has been on making sure there are enough hospital beds, making sure that the test kits are distributed evenly. But as we move into the later parts of the social distancing and they start getting the ICU beds under control, I think that that's going to be, we'll we'll see a shift more to trying to understand what has the impact of social distancing been. Have we really flattened the curve? Um, Are people kind of uh, chipping in and, and working hard to stay at home or are they getting restless and, and going out. Um, to more directly answer your question and, and not kind of talk around it, um, adoption has been varied. I think some uh, some groups are overwhelmed already with the number of data streams that they have um, and are really just trying to put out fires and triage at the moment. Um, in fact, we recently had a, a phone call with um, some groups in Utah um, to try and see whether or not they would be interested in seeing this data and they – about the possibility, So I would say adoption varies, um, but these are folks who are, who are totally overwhelmed right now and are trying to, to really just get a handle on, on the most pressing needs first.
0: Um, so you mentioned how you can kind of see the um, effects of social distancing if people are getting restless and uh, kind of also it'll give us a look at flattening the curve in the future. Have you seen anything that's promising or worrying in this data? Is there anything that you kind of noted that has stood out to you?
1: Yeah. One thing that, that becomes clear in looking at these data sets is that there is variation that depends on where people live and the kinds of jobs that people have um, in those areas. And what I really mean here is that if you are living in a neighborhood that uh, is not, rich, and everybody there still has to work because they work in essential industries where you can't just you know, work from a computer uh, from home, those kinds of folks who are still going to work may look like they're doing a worse job of social distancing. But I just want to point out that these are people who are, who are really in a bind um, and don't have another option. So in assessing these kinds of maps of mobility, What we really wanna avoid is, I'm gonna say pointing fingers at any particular neighborhood and more trying to understand why is it that people in in some areas versus others are um, more or less forced to to continue to work because they don't have these kind of nice work from home options that a professor like me has. Uh, So keeping that in mind um, is is definitely one one insight that we've seen looking at data, not just from Colorado, but um, also in other areas like New York and Chicago in, in those places, you can clearly see um, the difference between those neighborhoods where everybody has the privilege and luxury of working from home, and those neighborhoods where they still have to go to work every day.
0: Okay. Now, with these neighborhoods where there are more essential workers, um, is there a larger fear of the virus spreading in those areas?
1: Yeah, there are a number of factors that that can that can cause um, those kinds of disparities. You know, for instance, if you live even just in a larger house or um, uh, in a house at all instead of an apartment building or a a multifamily arrangement, um, you have the ability to, if you're feeling sick, sequester yourself in another room. Um, Use the guest room if you have one. But if you live in a a place where you don't have a guest room or where you just interact with other people in close proximity more often, um, that means you just don't have the luxury of, quarantining yourself. And so some of the disparities that I think are going to start to come out uh, as we see more and more testing data from actual cases uh, is that those folks who just didn't have the opportunity to to be as socially distant are going to suffer more of an impact from this disease.
0: What are some of those other factors? Are there any others that you found um, in your work?
1: Um, in, in my work? No. Um, if... You know, I, I think that that most of the other good work on this topic is is currently kind of underway um, and being done by by others.
0: All right. Um, so, how long have you been working with officials with the data you've been collecting? How long has the uh, project been underway for?
1: This project, like a ton of the other COVID stuff, has spun up um, at incredible speed. So, we first started getting data on uh, March 25th. Again, because of privacy issues, we, we didn't get any kind of backfilled data there. So our window of analysis really starts um, toward the end of March. So we're coming up on uh, three weeks of, of data now. Um, the people who started this network, I think, started uh, collecting data uh, for some other cities, maybe just a, a week prior to that. Um, and so uh, the timeline here has been, has been pretty short. Um, this is basically a group of um, professors who are, who are trying to step up and, and provide these mobility insights um, in a hurry.
0: You mentioned those three weeks.
1: Is that, kind of, is that the necessary amount of time to collect enough data for this project? The way that it works is that Facebook is able to spin up um, processes that take their existing data and give us kind of a daily data drip. Um, every eight hours we get a report from them mm-hmm in a raw form that we then process into these uh, updated situation reports. So having three weeks of data means that we can start to answer questions like, is social distancing starting to slip? Like are people getting weary of it and starting to move around more? Um, But what we can't see is backward into time before the statewide orders uh, came into effect. So what we can't do is see what was mobility like Um, let's say, February 15th. What we can do, though, is uh, use a baseline that Facebook gives us. They don't give us the exact information, but they do take an average of all of the Mondays for six weeks prior to when they started giving us data, all the Tuesdays, all the Wednesdays, and so on, so that we can baseline what we're seeing now versus the pre-crisis levels. So that's as much as we can peer back in time.
0: All right. So you mentioned, you mentioned a couple of times if you can see social distancing is working, at, people are starting to get worn out. Have you seen that? Have you
1: seen that people are starting to move around more and get worn out in general? So far, um, we've actually seen the opposite. So um, we saw in particular um, in some of the, the counties in the mountains who have really been bearing the brunt of a uh, much higher caseload, um, we've seen them, in fact, and do a better job of social distancing and, and moving around less uh, as things have gotten more severe there. Um, so if anything, we're we're seeing the opposite right now. People are really stepping up to to make sure that they stay safe.
0: All right. Um, so with all the work you've been doing, what would you recommend that our listeners do um, based on what you've seen?
1: Uh, I think it's time to, to really stay flexible and to see these policies for what they are, which is that Um, They're really trying to to keep Colorado safe and um, really trying to prevent the spread of this disease that overwhelmed our our ICUs. Um, There are some bright signs uh, on the horizon, and it seems like the social distancing is really working, uh, really working as intended. I guess the way that I think about this is that because of the two-week or so delay between when we start doing the social distancing and when we really start to see effect, kind of like if you're driving a car and when you turn the wheel, the car doesn't actually turn until a mile down the road. And that's the situation that we're in. When the statewide orders came into effect, we started turning that wheel and over the next week really turned it. Um, and only now is, is the car starting to turn. Um, and I think that we just had to, to keep at it.
0: Um, so soon we'll begin to see the effects of social distancing um, in uh... Positive way
1: yeah the the first signs here are that um, the daily case counts will start to go down and then hospitalizations will go down, um, and then the most lagging indicator of all um, deaths will start to go down. There's actually a nice write up of some of these early indicators in the Colorado Springs Gazette over the weekend um, that listeners might be interested in checking out. All right, thank you um.
0: So I guess that's the end of my questions. Is there anything else that you would like to tell our listeners?
1: Um, I just want to say thanks to the Colorado community for supporting researchers like me and, uh, and for, for, um, gosh, I guess it's, it's overwhelming, uh, the amount of of work that's required to try and dig us out of this, this current hole, but, um, I'm really appreciative of, of the support and, um, Yeah, thanks for for taking the time to ask these questions.
0: Thank you, Professor Larimore. We appreciate the work you've been doing very much, and we appreciate you taking a little time out of uh, your business schedule to uh, talk to us. Thanks so much, John. Stay safe. You as well. Stay safe.